0: Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere. Today, we're talking ESG in the energy space, but we've also got a special guest. Jim, over to you for introductions. So today we have with us Gregory John, a member of the Cree Métis in Alberta, and an advocate for what energy can and has done for the indigenous people in Canada. Gregory, do indigenous people in Canada want oil and gas development?
1: Well, certainly, uh, you know, given my experience, I've I've had uh, quite the career where I've been able to work on some of the most critical infrastructure projects in Canada, including Keystone XL, Uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion, Coastal Gas Link, and uh, my career has been focused on on having these conversations with First Nations, Métis, and and other Indigenous groups in Canada around what energy can mean uh, to each community. And what I've discovered is that it's rarely about uh, rejecting the opportunity to participate economically it's, it's certainly about making sure that development is done in a way that is sustainable, that protects the environment is the number one concern, protects water, animals, you know, and, and uh, the cultural way of life of Indigenous people in Canada. And, and so while sometimes it's not clear cut whether or not First Nations uh, want oil and gas development, um, they want development in general, and energy is a great example of, of an opportunity that brings the economy to very remote locations in Canada. Um, a colleague of mine, Mark Milkey, and I did kind of a deep dive on on this question in particular, um, where we examined uh, the public position of 250 First Nations uh, in 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 Canada that uh, uh, sorry in British Columbia and Alberta and tracked whether or not that they were supportive or not of uh, energy and energy infrastructure development. What we found was that there was an overwhelming support of responsible development within indigenous lands. And and so, you know, uh, I, I would say with certainty that, you know, indigenous people just don't want oil and gas development. Uh, they want responsible economic development, where energy is certainly a big part of that.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So how has oil and gas helped lift the standard of living for indigenous people?
1: Sure, well, uh, you know, I I think uh, kind of going back to some of the numbers here, you know, there are 250 First Nations in British Columbia and Alberta, and many of them are in very remote communities, you know, just as uh, I, I did live in Los Angeles for a few years, and, and you know, uh, Alberta is 60% bigger than California in terms of landmass. And, and so, but with only four and a half million people. So when we take a look at what remoteness means to some of these communities, we're talking very remote. Now, uh, most of these pipelines and, and infrastructure projects, but also a lot of uh, oil production, Happens in remote communities. Now, my favorite example is the Fort Mackay First Nation, that was uh, 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 that is near Fort McMurray in northern Alberta. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak with Chief Jim Boucher about um, uh, what what uh, Fort McKay was pre oil sands development and what it is now. And in 1960, uh, he said that. The community had no running water no electricity no road access and now it is one of the richest most well-off first nations in canada because of oil and gas development and this is one was once again a very remote community that just happened to be on a natural resource like uh, canada's oil sands now Another uh, important point here is that there's a, a total commitment by oil and gas companies in Canada to work with Indigenous uh, owned businesses uh, as a part of hiring local and ensuring the benefits that come from these types of development stay in community. Uh, last year, Suncor, Canada's largest um, um, oil company, uh did almost a billion dollars worth of work with first nations owned businesses to put that into comparison the government of canada did 95 million dollars worth of procurement with indigenous owned businesses so when we take a look at pure opportunity to work in this sector and the economic benefits that result of it there's nothing in comparison that, that would you know, uh, provide these types of economic opportunities in the size and financial benefit that the energy industry does here in Canada.
0: Wow, that is great insight. So Canadian oil companies have the highest of ESG standards in the world. It occurred to me, perhaps this is because they adhere to federal, provincial and indigenous rules. Can you tell our listeners how the oil companies consult with indigenous leaders on matters of the environment?
1: Absolutely. So there is a legal standard called the duty to consult and accommodate that was developed um, uh, you, you know, many years ago that required the federal government to uh, work with uh, indigenous communities when any potential development was in their area that could potentially affect uh, these communities. And it is, the bar is very low when it comes to determining whether or not an impact could affect a community. Now that impact could sim- like uh, could be uh, literally a land disturbance, whether or not development hap- happens on indigenous land, but it also can be in proximity to A community for example um, a a, uh, if a river downstream of a project crosses into First Nations territory then consultation must occur now what consultation means in practice is having a discussion on what this development will have not only on the land and the environment but on the cultural well-being of indigenous communities so it it's a full examination of socioeconomic impact, environmental impact, cultural impact, and and uh, taking a look at whether or not cultural sites will be disturbed is one of the largest uh, components of kind of these the, these studies. All of this pre work that has to be done with communities often takes between five to eight years to complete, in a way that satisfies this this legal standard of. The duty to consult, and and this forms a huge foundational, um, uh, a, a huge foundation of what um, working with indigenous communities and and uh, looks like in energy. So I mean, by the time we get to an approval, there's been hundreds and tens of thousands worth of hours put into ensuring that this development is done in a way that, uh, you know, is really in respect of these people that that live off the land. And, and uh, um, my favorite example is is when I talked with uh, chief council Counselor, pardon me, Crystal Smith out of the Heisla Nation on the North BC Coast. She said one environmental permit out of hundreds took 74 different meetings between the nation and the company that wanted to do work with the nation. So this is not something that is just done for a checkmark process. This is not just something that is done in, in uh, uh, you know, to, to satisfy a requirement. This is done in a way to make sure it's done correctly. And I mean, when you have to take a look at how many permits are required and then take a look at how one permit took 74 different meetings. I have to believe that we are coming with the right answer from Indigenous leaders that that this development will be done in a way that protects Indigenous way of life.
0: Wow, That's, that's due diligence. So are Indigenous communities buying equity stakes in projects?
1: Yeah, well, and and that's kind of the the newest um, kind of development that that we've had is um, one of the biggest, maybe I'll back up a sec, one of the biggest issues in terms of uh, indigenous participation in the economy, period, is access to capital. And uh, the largest issue around that is uh, if you live on reserve, you cannot own the land or the house that uh, is is given to you by the government. And and that is the effects of of a very antiquated policy called the Indian Act, which is still in force today. There's a lot of issues around that, and and certainly that could be a, a whole conversation to itself. But one of the most exciting things that has happened in Alberta in particular is the formation of the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation. Now it's a crown corporation that is that is at arm's length to the government of Alberta that will backstop um, loans uh, and 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 loan guarantees of First Nations uh, equity positions into major projects that range in from twenty million dollars all the way up to two hundred and fifty million dollars. There was a huge example of of that. Uh, Crown Corporation in action, uh, just uh, in September, where a group of First Nations uh, in central Alberta made a 93 million dollar equity purchase of a natural gas power plant that is being built. Now that was backstopped once again by by the province of Alberta and this new Crown this new Crown Corporation. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely an incredible opportunity to you know, see how, um, you know, uh, savvy some of these Indigenous communities are in business. Because these are Indigenous-led uh, negotiations with, uh, you know, the, these these large projects. Uh, just a few weeks ago, if not last week, or I guess it would be a few weeks ago now, uh, five First Nations made a bid for a portion of uh the keystone xl pipeline uh the muskwiches first nations which represents four first nations in central alberta and the neat first nation out of saskatchewan uh, they're looking to purchase an equity position in Co- uh pardon me uh, keystone xl so it's not only you know power generation it's pipeline development and and You know, we hear about uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline. There's a few groups that are looking at how they can own some of that.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. So what would you say to those Indigenous communities or members who have a different opinion from yours?
1: I I think... uh... It's it's there. There's, uh, you know, when, when when we take a look at the 250 First Nations, we have to acknowledge that each First Nation will have a different opinion on 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 oil and gas and development. And I, I really believe that, you know, having civil conversations around these differences is happening right now, you know, we might not all like the fact that uh, you know, uh, this is the economic opportunity that's being presented, but at least it is being presented for First Nations to take seriously and see if it works for their communities. I I think that that is such an empowering uh, position to be in, to make a decision whether or not uh, this works. Uh, I'm only one person and, and, you know, I've had the experience, which allows me to speak my own experience only and I mean, with 250 First Nations in Western Canada, you know, uh, I'm, I, I appreciate that Canada is having discussions with this kind of diversity at the table. That is paradigm shifting and absolutely something that uh, Canadian energy and Canadian economic development should be proud of.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Gregory John, and thanks for joining us today. You bet. Thanks a lot. Yes, thank you, Gregory. I really appreciate you spending time here with us. Be sure and join Jim and I next time as we dig more into ESG and the energy industry. For now, thanks and have a great week.